This episode is brought to you by VetTech. VetTech has been manufacturing and distributing the highest level of hoof care products worldwide for nearly 20 years. VetTech's line of hoof-related materials allows hoof care professionals to complete hoof repairs and glue-on shoes with Adhere, as well as create instant shoes and full extensions with Superfast. VetTech's instant pad materials such as Equipack and Equipack CS help to promote heel and sole growth as well as manage thrush, protect and support the foot, and prevent stone bruising. Contact us today to find out more by calling 800-483-8832 or visit our website at www.vettech.com. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. One of my goals before starting this podcast was to shrink the size of the farrier industry. Certainly there are well-known farriers whose names are recognized internationally as great clinicians or top hands. But even with how small the internet has made our world, there are farriers who have had tremendous impacts and can continue to advance our thinking that may not be a name universally recognized by other farriers. The great thing about this podcast is now you get the chance to learn about those farriers. They've been helping horses for decades, both through their work and through their efforts of mentoring so many other exceptional farriers. One of those shoers is Dick Becker. Based in Michigan, he is well known throughout the Midwest. He is also recognized by those of a certain age as being a past member of the American Farriers team. But if you're a shoer in the Southwest or maybe the Pacific Northwest, you may not know who Becker is. This episode jumps right into Becker talking about how he got into horseshoeing. Enjoy. My parents, the whole family came from horses, and my my mom and dad had horses, and um, my brother and I, we grew up with horses and and stuff like that. And my dad, uh, when we were kids, we had, uh, my dad, I had a quarter horse and my brother had an Arab. And when we started showing horses a little bit, Back in those days, they were called breed shows, and that, and uh, so they'd be go to one show for a weekend or a day, and that and did have some classes for Arabs, some classes for quarter horses, because he didn't want my brother and I competing against each other in the same class and create problems, you know, and that which was pretty smart on him, his role, you know. But uh, uh, yeah, we grew up with horses right from the get go, and, and that. my mom and dad. My dad was a tool and die maker, and on the sideline, him and my mom, they started this Western supply business, and they sold saddles and all the equipment and everything, and boots, the whole bowl of wax. And so I grew up in that in that environment. And used to be involved in the 4-H and broke a few horses, my brother and I. And, um, we bought some young horses, and dad wasn't going to pay somebody to train them, so we had to buy books and do it ourselves, you know, and, and stuff like that. And, Taught us a lot. Taught us a lot. Yeah, was that the same area of Michigan that you're in now? Uh, well, yeah, probably about 20 miles south of where I'm at now. But this is all built up now, and all the horses have moved up north, further, further north, where I live now. You know, I grew up in a town called Rochester, and I live now in Lapeer. It's probably about 20, 25 miles difference in between the two of them. Uh, Lapeer and a little town called Metamora are really close to one another. And Metamora is really known for a lot of hunter jumpers and fox hunters. A very, very horsey community. It's, I mean, I don't think you can have less than 10 acres 
I think that's the smallest piece of property you can have in the area. And uh, there's horse farms all over the place. I can get up in the morning and leave my house and in 10, 15 minutes be underneath a horse. What made you interested in horse, the horseshoeing aspect? I was just interested in the horses at the time when I was a kid, you know, and um, I'd try and ride anything, you know. And uh, one of my jobs as a, as a young boy was when the blacksmith, who was uh, and back in those days, was uh, uh, Russell and Jack Breckenridge. It was a family operation, and they used to shoe the horses for my dad. And, uh, well, we had some young horses and everything. Well, dad made arrangements for Russell that it, it, because my dad would go off to work and mom would be gone. If I stayed home and helped hold horses and everything, Russell would drop me off at school. And I thought I was getting a deal out of this. Didn't want to have to go to school that day, you know. (laughs) But uh, Russell Breckenridge made sure I was in the truck and he drove up and dropped me off. Yeah. So, so I was introduced it kind of that way, and I was always, uh, I always liked it, you know, and I was always interested in it, you know. And, but then, you know, you're at the age of, you know, 12, 15 years old, you don't know what, you know, you don't know what you really want to do. You, you think this and you think that, you know. Some kids do. Um, but after high school, you know, I thought I was going to go off to college. My parents kind of wanted me to take over their business. And I really kind of wanted to venture out on my own. And uh, my older brother was a uh, uh, veterinarian, and like he'd already started his practice in town. And um, so I decided, I said, well, yeah, okay, you know, I'll, I'll go to school, get a business degree and stuff like that. And as time changed, um, I thought I'd go into uh, uh, artificial insemination. I was going to change schools. Business school I was going to was I forget which one was on one was on semesters and one was on quarters, and well, I had to sit out for six weeks. And during that six weeks time, Uncle Sam comes knocking at the door, and all of a sudden here I am in a different country with a lot of rice with a rifle in my hand. Who, who are these people? You know, and so I spent a couple years in Vietnam, and when I got home, I. uh, got married and I said, well, man, I got to really make a living. What am I going to do here? You know, and uh, I thought about going in, going into business with my mom, mom and dad, taking over that order. But that was being in one building, one location all the time. Just wasn't intriguing to me. So uh, I thought, you know, this horseshoeing thing, there's a horseshoeing school around here someplace. I know, I know there is, you know, and so I got involved in that and, um, once I got going in it, um, I it just it just a lot of stuff came natural to me. I don't know whether it was because of uh, I was around horses a lot, so there was a lot of association there, and I knew a little bit about what's going on. Um, as the just I knew horses had to be shod. I knew about the foot a little bit, you know, and stuff like that. So the one advantage I had when I got out of shoeing school was the family name and in the horse business in our area. Uh, my brother being a veterinarian and my dad and my mother having the Western store and uh, being involved in 4-H because my dad was a 4-H leader. And uh, so that, that really was a big start for me. It really was. I struggled just like everybody else does. You, 
you know, I'm a firm believer of the ladder system. You start on the ladder, you get you get up to the top, which I don't think anybody ever gets to the top. But that you got to get on that first ring and start work your way up, work your way up the ladder. And I'm a firm believer of that. And that ladder is a long, long ladder. You did have those advantages, but a lot of the struggles. And, I had a lot of know, struggles. What, what were some of those early lessons you learned to, to overcome? Well, one thing I learned. When you're starting out as a horseshoer, you kind of want to be as close as you can to being on time. Otherwise, you get fired. <laughs> um, but uh, as far as the horses and everything, it's, it's a lot of trial and error, you know. And, um, well, that didn't work. Let's try this. Uh, the, as far as getting horses shod back in those days, the horses stand a lot better today because they're dealt with a lot. They're a lot more. They're handled a lot more. I mean, you still have those outfits that, that they don't, but in our area, the horses were starting to be handled a lot more. Uh, but when I first started out, we had to wrestle a few. I mean, it wasn't uh, uh, um, easy. I think today, in today's horse equine business, um, as a general, general speaking, today, back in those days, there was more horsemen to deal with horses. Today, you have more pet owners. I'm a firm believer of that. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. But there's people out there that I know that have had horses for, I don't know, 15, 20 years, and they don't know any more about a horse than they did the first year they had one. You know, and then there's other people that just go on, and they excel. And they they become very good horse people, very good horsemen. And I I think that is a, an advantage, a horse people or a horsemanship is an advantage to a horseshoer. I really believe that because they understand it. They, 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 those horse people understand. Where a lot of people that are uh, 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 pet owners, they got a lame horse. They don't know why. It's been diagnosed with this or that. And uh, uh, they just want it fixed. Well, ma'am, I'm sorry. I, you, you, I, I can't fix your horse. And you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Uh, this horse isn't made to do this job. This horse is made to pull logs out of a woods. He's not made to be a dressage horse. He doesn't have the movement, you know, the personality, the brains. Um, and that, But yet, we as horseshoers are put in these positions that, you know, we got to fix this, we got to fix this. And, and, and sometimes I think, in my opinion, sometimes the best way to handle some of that stuff is just um, just go down the road and, and do what you do and what you know what needs to be done. And, and, and don't explain nothing. Just do it and do it the right way. Let everything else play out. Don't try to be a hero. Just shoot the horse. Don't get that horse's way and let him do his job. Good, solid basics. That's a, I'm in good, solid basics when it comes to shooting horses. Yeah, you, you said that earlier today that that's what you really tie yourself right. to. And right. Was it always that way? Is that- I was I, I was taught that way when I did a short um, apprenticeship for with a guy, one of the instructors I went to shoeing school with. Uh, he asked me to come with him. And uh, I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot of the do's and a lot of the don'ts as well. And um, you have to be, how can I say, uh, there's a give and take on both sides of all this to make it out work out right, but you still have to play within yourself. And, and I'm not into gimmicks. I mean, if it's broke, it's broke. 
But if it's not broke, I'm not going to try and fix it either just to make a dollar. You know, I believe in shooting the horse first, then the client. Good, solid basics, I, I think, is, is a good way to go. And, uh, and knowledge, um, lack of knowledge is your worst enemy. You know, and um, you, you, you constantly have to learn this profession constantly. It, it doesn't. It, you know, there's always different ways to do things, but it all comes back to the basics. I think you're constantly learning. Uh, my dad taught me one time and said something about, I forget how old he was, but uh, every day is a new day. So you're growing every day. Every day is a new day. Um, I think you learn from the past. I think we all do. Um, God, I've screwed up horses. The thing is, is that I learned from it. You know, um, and that's the part of going forward and, and having the open mind and not only learning from your, your your failures, but having, when you fall down, the biggest thing is get up and try it again. Keep going, and and do what you do what you like to do. If you like if you like what you're doing and enjoy your, your profession, you don't really work. You really don't. You're doing what you want to do, and and I've reached that point in my life. I've been shooting horses now for going on forty five years, and. Um, well, sure, I've slowed down. I've, you know, after 45 years, I'm sorry, you're going to start slowing down. You're not shooting horses like you were when you were 20. I think I'm a little bit smarter now, but sometimes I think you gotta you got to fall down to get that way. Have you taken on a lot yeah, of Yeah, over the years, I've had a lot of guys, and I'm, I'm pretty happy about that because all the guys I've had work with me um, are shooting horses, and they're making a living at it. Um. Uh, Doug Russo here, I'm really proud of him. He, uh, he's he gone, and uh, uh, when he first started working with me, I the first day at the end of the day, I scratched my head. And uh, when I got home, I said to my wife, Andrea, I says, this is a project. And and she, says, she asked me, what do you mean? I says, man, this he he's a mechanic. He's good with his hands, but, man, he just, I got to slow him down and, he said he went to shoeing school, but wow, man, I don't know what school he went to, but nothing against shoeing schools. But, you, you, you know, and Doug really turned the table. And he worked with me for about five, six years. And um, he was diligent at it. And um, he was eager. And he learned. And he taught himself some things. And he fell down a lot. And um, But now he's he's gone on it. He asked me about coming out here to Iowa for this job here at the Iowa State University and that. And he asked my opinion and that. And I thought it was a good deal for him. And he's taken the ball and ran with it. And he's really been a success. And he's got good opinions. And uh, and I hope I hope he's listened to me and, and, and uh, um, has learned from some of that and applied some of that. Because I think he's in a good situation here where he can really help out the farrier and the veterinarian relationship and understanding one another and helping the horse, because that's what it's all about, you know? And I'm sure he understands, I know he understands that you, you, you can't fix everything. And sometimes you just, uh, you gotta shoot the horse first and not not the pocketbook and, and not, I know the owner's there, but sometimes you just gotta be straight up forward with the owner and say, ma'am, I'm sorry, but this is the way it is. You're not going to fix navicular. It, 
It is what it is. You maintain it. And I think horseshoeing is a maintenance job, to tell you the truth. And you're getting back to that that level, the pet owner. You're, you know, that, right, you know, right. Having to explain that. How have, how have you been successful in explaining to that more the pet owner side about management versus fixing? Understanding and explaining it to them in an anatomy way and, and using analogy of, uh, um, of trying to find a system that they know about. Um, maybe they've had themselves had some health problems and they themselves, it is what it is. And so horses are no different than humans. When I discovered that, I try to be practical and explain it that way. And it, it is what it is, man. We can help, but we can't fix I mean, um, and stuff like that. God made the horse. If the horse is heading north, he's got a foot that's heading east. Um, I can't take a pipe wrench and turn it and make it go forward. You had a lot of clients for a long period of time. Right. Yeah. You know, is that a, a, a product of your practice or I guess what do you attribute that to? And, and, and talk about how long you've had some of those clients. Well, uh, the one barn I have is probably, um, they probably got 68, 70 head of horses in them. That's a big English barn riding lesson. So they have school horses and they have show horses and they, they show the A circuit, the B circuit and C circuits. They, they do it all, hunters and jumpers. And that, I've been doing those horses probably for well, 42 years, thereabouts. Uh, another client's got about 15 head of horses. I've been doing her horses, God, for 40 years anyways. And I've got a client that uh, whose husband is a veterinarian, equine veterinarian. And that's, yeah, I've been doing their horses for 32, 33. I've been doing a lot of smaller places. My newest client is probably 15 years, you know. But I run my business pretty pretty rugged to where it's my rules. I put your horse down every six weeks. I'm going to do them close as I can with, with variety. I mean, different schedules, my schedule and their schedule, but I'm going to do them on a continuous basis. I'm not, you're not going to call me and expect me to come within, you know, a day or the next, next day or that, because it isn't happening. Yeah. You, you want to schedule it ahead of time. Right. Whatever I do, that, that day, if I, I just count out six weeks, and I put them in the books to do them. And then if I have to schedule horses different for my for my convenience or their convenience, then I can do that. But they're in there. And I try not to overbook myself, which is, which is it, it can happen, you know. Yeah, but it seems like it's, you know, most farriers recognize that. If you can establish that cornerstone of regularity, you're going to head off. A lot of the problems you're going to face, right? Especially with those those owners who are less savvy and don't under, right. understand the management of their horses, right? right. Maintenance, I, 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 it's maintenance. It's uh, I might get in trouble for saying this, but uh, it's like shoeing horses and maintenance. It's always going to start changing. I mean, the shoe job at when you're done with the shoe job that first week, that's going to be a little bit different shoe job than it is at six weeks. No matter how good it is, I don't believe in the perfect shoe job. I just, I just, I don't think it exists. There's a lot of good guys out there. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of good guys, and yet, but things change. 
bony columns create force to go here and there and the foot growth is different got to go back and do it again um and once you get things going and, and, and keep up on it you can control things a lot a lot better in, in your daily practice there's, there's also the, the the idea of the perfect job that you can't attain the perfect chewing job but you want to do your best possible job how how do you approach your daily work to get to do your best possible work but not get too wrapped up to where you're you're pursuing that that perfect. achievable perfect job so it goes right back to basics but the one thing that comes involved in shoeing horses is uh, different parts of the country environments um, conditions the horse lives in um, and I think we as farriers owners trainers and veterinarians all need to understand that and be on the same page of that. If a veterinarian wants me to put an egg bar shoe on for a horse for some reason, it's going to be sticking out the back and this horse is out living in a swamp and there's down fence all over the place and the grass is coming up in the spring, how long do you think that shoe is going to stay on? Not very long. So what good is it? What good is it? Sort of like having a flat tire in a car and going off of Walmart and get that liquid stuff and put it in there and drive to New York. It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. Do you have to communicate that a lot with vets you work with of moving away from the idea of being given an exact shoeing prescription? Right. I do. I, I'm pretty upfront with that. Um, I, work, I work on a lot of horses with, with a couple of different vets. And um, I just I see, see what the problem is. They... They take in their x-rays, they made their diagnosis, and, and we just come up as a team what we're going to do. Um, and I'm not a magic guy, and I'm not into uh, quick fixes and stuff like that. Um, I'm a big believer in the heart bar for a lot of, for, for quite a few things. But I shoe the horse for that, for, for that, that, that job. Well, not job, but for his, for his problem stuff like that it, but I have to take in consideration of the environment and the maintenance that the barn help the owner the trainer the veterinarian what's going to happen because I'm going to see him um, in six weeks and some veterinarians uh, uh, they see these horses for the first time and they make a diagnosis well they make this diagnosis well the, the, the true thing is is that You've seen this horse once. You're making a diagnosis already. Uh, this horse needs got long toes and it's low heel. You need to put a wedge pad on it. Something like that. So wait a minute, Doc. I've been shooting this horse for a couple of years now. You never had a problem. What the problem is, the people need to pay the bill for the last three or four shoeings. That's why this horse hasn't been shied for 16 weeks. You know, there's your long toe, low heel, and and stuff like that. And I think I think honesty is the best way, and straightforwardness is the best way to handle some of that stuff. Uh, even with the owners and the trainers, say, "Hey, I'm sorry, I ain't doing nothing. I ain't doing any of that. Bill hasn't been paid from last time. Stuff like that." And I think that's the business end of it. You have to you have to run your farrier practice as a business as well. How have you improved that business side? You know, especially 
I think not being paid or late payments are a, a big part of that. Um, you know, is it still a case where if someone's late, you don't pay, or, or have you changed how you how you collect overall? No, I, I've changed with the times. Um, I think a lot of people have, and a lot of figures have, because I, I do take credit cards. So, and, and I do tell people, well, you got three, four ways to pay me. You know, you can put it on your credit card. You can send me a check, give me a check there. I always accept cash, you know, just like everybody. So, yeah, I, and I think it's just you got to, um, barriers have got to be business people too. They can't be just, if you're going to run a successful practice, you got to think business as well but you have to think of that horse on the long haul as well too yeah that's that's a tough balance because it is you want to keep care of that animal but you know and, and horses are sold and things change and, and right that, but yeah it's a tough thing to balance it is it is but i think the business practices is that, that i see a lot of farriers fall into is that for some reason they're scared to raise their prices keep up with the economy, inflation, insurance, and stuff like that. And when they break things down from horse to horse to horse and what their profit is off per horse, then out of that profit, they got to supply uh, uh, their kids with lunch money to go to school, stuff like that. They don't figure it's those little tiny things that eat away at that profit. But yet, if rasps go up, nails go up a little bit, Five, ten, they eat that little bit of being cost, increase in their cost and stuff like that. So they they don't think of the big picture. They think, well, if I raise my prices to this account, I'm gonna I'm gonna lose lose them. They're gonna get somebody else. And I think I think it should be just the opposite. I think you should automatically raise your prices every single year according to your area. And it should be a standard, and your customers should know that. I, I do that every year. You know, you like, I mean, you talked about the longevity of your clients, but that's something you established, and that's you a, let them know so that they win, They win. just know it automatically that every April I'm every raising April. every April I'm raising my why April? Because uh, I think that's when uh, I've come. It used to be every January, but I come up with that because uh, it seems like all the. The suppliers where I start raising their increases start then, and the open houses and stuff like that, and uh, the, the companies, uh, uh, the manufacturers, stuff like that. So I just, it, you can do it anytime. It's just that in our area, we're dealing with a lot of winter shoes. So we're resetting shoes from that we've put on horses because they're all winter, some of them are winter shod. Uh, especially the hunters and jumpers that um, field hunt, go tally hole in the fox, you know, and stuff like that. We take and uh, put a, a set of winter shoes on them, and they'll reset. The, we'll reset those shoes pretty much until like, oh, like this time of year, March, their time, and then we start taking them off in, in April, and everybody starts gearing up and building up their supply again, stuff like that. So you think most farriers who who don't think about raising prices or don't are it's just a fear that, well, my clients won't pay it and they don't have enough. They don't think they have enough good clients who will pay or they don't think they, they have the opportunity to gain more clients to replace the ones they lose. It's, it's, a, tough, it's a tough thing to, to, to come up with, a plan for your clientele. And everybody's clientele is a little bit different. But I think if you don't think of yourself in that return, you end up losing. 
that, that's kind of what I'm saying. You you end up having the um the sore back, and and, that, and you got to think those clients aren't those clients that you're doing. It's not going to be at your door when you're 70, 80 years old, handing you a retirement plan. You know, and so you have to figure all that in. in. And I think it's an important feature that you have to figure in over the long haul. Yeah, and do you think that, you know, you're getting back to the idea, you know, is it the idea that pet owner type of horse owner that they don't understand what a ferry is doing and then therefore don't have the appreciation right. to pay for it? Right, right. I had, a, I had a customer years ago had, uh, this is one of the customers I've been doing for 40 years. Um, I've been doing their horses for like, uh, oh, 10, 10 years or so. And uh, I was in an auto accident in, uh, in the 80s, and I, I broke my back. And so I was laid up from, uh, was it like in the first part of August till December, I was pretty much out of it. And they had bought this horse, and uh, they needed to pull the shoes. So she calls me and wanted me to, tell her how to do it. She went to the store and bought a pair of pull-outs. And I sort of ex- explained to her the best I could over the phone. I said, why don't you have just, I'll get somebody to come over and pull the juice for you. It's no, 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 I'm going to do it myself. I said, okay, all right, no problem. Her and her girlfriend, the next day, it took them almost all day to get those shoes off. They used pliers, they used pull-offs, they used everything they could. And they finally got the shoes off. And she called me. And she says, Richard, I will never, ever bitch to you again about shoeing prices. And that's sometimes what it takes, you know. Um, so that's it's just practicality, you know. It's a little bit harder. We make it look easy. We really do. Because it's muscle memory. It, it, you just learn how to do it. You learn the easy way to do it. But to the average person, they see that. But if they actually do it, it's a tough road to go. Yeah, they don't notice the detail that's going into right. to even pulling a shoe. Right, right. I had a customer years ago, a lady called me and never never did their horses. This lady called me and uh, she wanted to make an appointment. She had uh, uh, three horses to shoot all the way around, her and her husband. It's okay, so I made an appointment. Never done it before. And uh, she asked me at the end of the conversation what I charged. And I told her. And, uh, well, two, two, three days later, she called to cancel the appointment. And she just left a message on my message, my answering machine. And she said, no, my husband and I have to talk. That's way too much money. Way too much money. So <laughs> I didn't think nothing of it. Okay, fine and dandy. You know, probably about a Oh, a month later, from two, three legs to a month, I get this phone call, same lady. She's wanting me to come by and finish shooting the horses. I says, what do you mean finish? And, and she says, well, my husband thought he would try and do it himself, and he bought the materials. One horse could barely walk, and he's got a broken leg. I says, what happens? Says, one horse did not want to have anything to do with being shot and got him pretty good and broke his leg. I says, here, let me give you a few numbers. I can't get to you right now. <laughs> and, that, and 
you know, some people just don't learn, you know, and it's, but you make it when you are fishing, you make it look a little bit more simpler, but the people that know horses and that, they, they know that the horse people know and that, that it's a little tougher than what, what it really is, what we live in the look up. Uh, uh, going back to something you were talking about earlier, you know, get, gathering all that information and, um, you know, you want to collect all this information uh, from the different people, uh, you know, and then you're going and reading the horse. Can you talk a little bit about how you work with each horse and how you like to pull all that information together from all the different... I think I think the first thing you got to learn is read the horse. All horses are different, have personalities, and just like people. And um, there's some horses you can pick up a foot and clean it and, and smoke a shoe on them, won't even bother them. Um, some horses you have to train them to do that. Take some of these old, the old thoroughbreds off the racetrack. Um, I like old thoroughbreds for the simple reason they're a little flexible. And that, um, but you got to train them for that, for that smoke. And and that takes a little bit of time. And some of them you really can't. I mean, you can just barely get get a, get a burn to get a clip in or something like that and they never get over it um and, and to read that because sure it's nice to have a nice hot shoe and burn on a foot and get a good fit and everything but sometimes you got to sit there and if you got two or three horses and prosthetize uh or, or or uh some a lady down a couple down the alley's got a horse and she's trying to put a saddle on and you create your own wreck Everybody loses, right? And I say, so I think you got to pay attention to your surroundings and your areas and understand the horses. Not all horses cross tie. Um, some horses, what they call, have what they call are head shakers. And a lot of people, uh, uh, they'd be, be shaking their heads, you know, and other the flies, oh, this horse is nasty to do, this horse, that, you know. Well, he's got a little problem. His trigenical nerve in his face. It, it, it causes him to do this. So there's little things like that of reading a horse of the habits that they create that, that because if you don't want to get in a fight with that horse because you're never going to win. So you just got to slow down and understand and read that horse. And, and then you can do a better job to begin with. You know, um, I, just, I just think that's a little bit of horsemanship and just watching them. Some horses you can't catch in the stall. I'm not going to catch a horse in the stall sometimes. I'll get whoever's horse it is, or uh, uh, the barn help. I, I've done that. And sometimes you get a horse that's a little goofy and a little, little antsy. You know, oh, man, they're all scared of this horse. And I said, go get him a buddy. Bring him up here and cross-tie that horse or tie this horse by this other horse. They're herd-oriented animals. They like friends. You know, they don't like isolation. And um, so you just figure them out. They're all different, all personalities. Especially today, a lot of people seem to not have the means or didn't grow up around horses, you know, the way you, the way you did, and I think benefited your career. Uh, I guess, how, how can you help improve learning that if you didn't grow up with that experience? I, I, think, I think a big thing is that there's a lot of guys out there that are very mechanically and very good horseshoers and have the means of being very good horseshoers. But they need to hook up with somebody that's been around with the horses and, and handled horses and, and get the experience with the horses and understanding the horse and understanding his movement and his job. You know, some guys, some, sometimes you get hung up, I think, in shooting a breed. 
Oh, only thing he can shoe is dressage horses. And yet, and I think I, you don't want that. You've got to look at each horse as an individual and his job. You know, that's you're shoeing that horse for a job. Um, and, and some horses, um, I think if you my philosophy is kind of, my job is to stay out of their way. Just support them. Protect the foot. Give them traction. That let them do their job. That's that's my whole thing. And there's different ways that you can do that. I mean, but um, I'm not going to sit there and put a big heavy shoe on some little horse, and I'm not going to put a little thin tiny shoe on a big footed horse. You know, thin stock. You know, I'm going to shoe the foot and the horse for his job. You know, um, and I think that's good. Just good safe shoeing. And sometimes I've seen horses, and uh, I've been involved in cases where um, all the fancy high-tech um, materials and shoeing and stuff like that get involved and everything. And, uh, I've been involved where uh, take all that stuff off, clean the foot up, just get a, a good solid shoe on there, and no sole pressure. Sometimes horses, I think, I think we all get carried away. I know young farriers get carried away. Uh, some of the guys that have apprenticed with me, that it's happened to them and stuff. And at first, when you first pull into the barn and you're, you're there to shoe these horses, and there isn't that much foot to come off this horse. Well, these people are standing there, so they want to see you trim some foot, foot off. They want to see some hoof trimmings on the floor so the dog can eat it, you know. Feed the dog that day. And, and uh, uh, a lot horse ends up being a little shorter than what he needs to be. You put a piece of steel on him, now he's a little ouchy the next day. You know, well, that's a bad thing. Sometimes less is more. I've trimmed a lot of horses where I just take a wire brush to them and round them back up. That's sort of like you and I going to the dentist. Every time you go to the dentist and you get a, a, a checkup or something or your teeth clean, you have to take that drill and start drilling, you know? And that, so it, 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 that's part of what they should be paying. Horseshoe should be think they're paying me for my education of what my opinion is on this job, uh, of what should be done and what shouldn't be done. And I think we need to stand up for our profession and and, and, and do that. And that's all. How, how, how do you do that? How do you stand? How do you, how do you recommend? Because, you know, take, taking that example, I, I, you know, not only young guys have to face that, but I think guys with years of experience where somebody looks at your job and they don't have the ability to evaluate what they're doing, or as you said, they want to see you trim that foot. Is it best to go about your work and wait until they ask, or do you intervene and say, you know, you, you kind of introduce yourself as an expert and say, hey, you may notice I'm not trimming a lot of this foot off in here. Oh, yeah, I t if I'm not going to trim that horse's foot a lot and the customer's standing right there, I'm going to tell him. Because, man, his feet look great. It, it, the thing is, is the, the customers don't understand the anatomy that's involved in that. They don't know that there's a pile of blood underneath all that. They don't know any idea where the coffin bone's sitting. They don't know anything about the circumflex artery. They don't, they don't know anything about sole pressure. They just know they got a lame horse. And, and I think you got to be straightforward and up front with some man. I can trim this foot, but he not, might not be walking out. 
And a perfect example in my area is sometimes making the correct call is because of the environment. We got a, this winter, we had a lot of rain. We had to, a month that things softened right up and it was a lot of rain, mud, everything. Then all of a sudden we got real cold weather and all that mud turned into rocks, frozen mud rugs. And well, I'm not trimming a horse that's going to be turned out in the pasture with frozen mud rugs or some uh, uh, run in shed that's all areas all full of mud, frozen mud, you know, that's to me common sense. That's understanding the horses. And I think that's what we need as profession, understand that ourselves, as well as um, explaining that to the customer. And you pull in the barn and you pull up foot and old Dobbin, he, he hasn't got much foot, it's just broken up a little rough looking, you know, hit it with a wire brush, check it, check it, inspect it and round it back up with your rasp and good to go. Um, that's where less is more. You're giving that horse's amount of foot to walk on. I think I think sometimes everybody misunderstands the idea of length in a horse's foot. Uh, there's toe length, but there's vertical depth length. And the vertical depth is what the horse is walking on. He's he's going to feel that pebble. He's going to feel that that uh, frozen mud rut. And I think we have to think that way and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah talked about your helpers in the past, like Doug. For young people listening, what's your best advice for being a good helper and, and learning while you're doing the job? Wow, that's a tough one. That comes into personalities too. Yeah. <laughs> for, well, for one thing, I've had a lot of guys work with me. And I'm really happy about that, that, that they're all still shooting horses. And um, one thing I'm pretty proud of, uh, I've worked with a lot of guys to get them through the uh, certifications and, and, and practice for competitions and stuff like that. And we always have fun. That's that. That's number one thing with me is enjoy the moment, okay? Because if you don't enjoy the moment and you, and you make things really hard for everybody, everybody gets a bad attitude, okay? And I think to learn, you gotta have the good attitude. It's a lot in the, in the attitude. So anybody that's ever worked with me, we've always had fun. I've always expected a certain things and I always let them fall down and I pick them back up. I always tell them when they screw up, I'll flat out, I'll nail them to the wall. But when they do something good, I, I praise them for it. And I'm one of these guys that just, um, I'm big on, uh, negativity, but I'm also big on positivity. And I always try to finish off on positive. You know, man, you really, man, that, that's a pretty nice job, but boy, did you butcher that frog. That frog looks terrible. But man, you got a nice, nice nailing job. You nailed that foot up. Finished it off great, but it probably wouldn't pass anything because the, the foot prep and the frog, you butchered all that, and you got a big gap in here, but the nailing job's good. You know, so they start learning. So now they start looking at different things. And, at, and, um, I try to get them to think for themselves as well as me just telling them. And I let, I, I kind of reach them to a point and I start turning them loose, but I always keep them between me and my truck. If we have two or three horses in the cross ties, I'll have my truck and I'll be on the end horse. So I have to walk past whoever's working on that horse. I have two young boys right now. It's working with me, uh, uh, Colin and, and Mike, 
and um, they're they're good hands, and they they've learned a lot over the years, and they've turned into very good horsemen, and uh, I'm really proud of them. They they can, I'm not scared to leave and go someplace, and they can take over if need be. They can cover for me if I'm gone, which is really a good thing at my age because I kind of sometimes want to, Mama and I want to take off and go enjoy life, you know, if we reach that point. When you're taking on a helper, you know, when somebody calls and asks you, do you establish an expectation of how long they, you know, like if Work somebody with calls, me? yeah, and say, you know, no, I, I, just, I know some guys do, but everybody's different, you know, they're going to go on. They're, they're all going to go on. Some guys will work with you for a year, two years, you know, and they change your mind. They want to do this, and they go off and do this. Um, the biggest thing, though, is that all the guys that have worked with me, they're all still shooting horses. I had a retired guy, uh, got, uh, uh, retired from the shop. He was like 45 years old before he even started this. And I said, what, are you crazy? You want to start shooting horses at 45? And, and I said, besides, you know, good stout man you know and uh, he said yeah well we've always had horses and i want to take care of my own and all this stuff he turned out to be a pretty good hand and he was he, he learned a lot about the horses and he knew he knew some but he got better and and, and um he retired moved up north into michigan does a few horses here and there you know it, it, he enjoys it and it's his thing then I've had guys that just eat it up and like Doug and, and Jeff Powers and that, and they just, they're just gung ho at shooting horses, you know, and Mike is, Colin is, you know, there's a lot of guys that, that have worked with me that way. I'm really happy that, that Doug presented me at the Michigan Horseshoers Clinic, uh, Doug and Jennifer, they presented me with this big, huge shoe board of all the guys that I've helped pass their journeyman or their certification. It's a, it's a big board, you know, and everybody made a shoe, put it on the board. It was, uh, it was very impressive. I was very proud of that. Yeah, well, that a very proud moment. It, it, it made all the uh, uh, all the effort you put in to help these guys. The times when we come home from work shoeing horses, uh, and I'm tired, and they say, hey, Dick, can you show me to make a bar shoe? Hey, can you show me how to fuller better? You know, this and that. It made that. I said, yeah, 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 let's go in the shop. So you go in and tell Mama, hey, Go ahead and eat. I'm gonna be out in the shop for a little hour or two, or three. And yeah, and um, some guys show up the door. You know, hey, I'm going to practice for. I'm gonna go take the journeyman test or something. You know, and that. Can you help me with my bar shoe, or uh, can you show show me something on shoeing, being more efficient on shoeing a horse? You know, and that. And, and say, sure, yeah, we go. I've got two or three ambles in the shop, and I always keep some cadaver legs in the in the freezer. And, that, and uh, yeah, I've had a few guys just show up and we go at it. Yeah. You mentioned, we're, you know, we're here at the, the clinic at Iowa State and there's the competition, and, you know, in your history, competition, you, it's been a big part of your member of the team. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what drew you initially to that forging aspect? Well, when I got a, the Michigan Horseshoe Association, before this AFA, had their certification. Uh, the Michigan Horseshoers Association had a certification involved. And um, it was just a certification. Didn't have any, wasn't a certified or journeyman or anything like that. It was just a Michigan certified horseshoe. And, that, and the association ran and kept records and everything on it. And 
it was a pretty tough test. And that was one of the tests that we had to take when we graduated from a shooting school I went to. Um, and you had to build a bar chute, and you had to shoot one foot, and you had to put heel cocks on that. The bar shoe was fuller. The shoe on the foot with heel cocks was uh, just plain stamped. And you sort of had a time limit. You could, couldn't take all day, but I mean, you, I mean, it was like an hour and a half, something like that, you know. And yeah, if I remember right. And um, then they took you into a room, and there was like five, six farriers in this room, and they each had a category. And they'd ask you questions. That's a little intimidating. Here, you young guy out of shoe in school, you know, and these guys are—they're asking you all these questions, you know. And then they—you leave the room, and then you come back, and they might ask you some more room. And all of a sudden, they either say you, you failed or you passed. It was a do or don't deal. And it was kind of a copy of off the uh, of the test that's for the uh, the Platers Union for the tracks. You know, they, you had to sweat shoes and shoe a horse and make bar shoes and stuff like that. And um, so it was kind of a little bit of that. And uh, so I kind of was involved in the forging aspect when in shoeing school, I really liked it. But after that, I, I passed my certification thing with that. And the Michigan certified back in those days, we were grandfathered into the AFA. If you were a Michigan certified farrier, you were grandfathered in as a certified, not a journeyman, just a certified farrier with the AFA when they started their program. Well, when I when I first started chewing horse, I thought that was really cool. And and man, I passed this thing. This really this is this like in April, you know. And I went to work, you know, and I had a family, and I had, you know, uh, one one child and one on the way, you know. So man, I got to get to work. So I was working for myself, and I was doing an apprentice thing with one of the instructors at the shooting school that I went to. And uh, um, so I, I'd leave early in the morning. I wouldn't get home till 10, 11 o'clock at night, you know. And uh, But it was all worth it. And then somebody said something to me about a horseshoeing contest at the Michigan State Fair that fall. I go, well, what's this, you know? And a gentleman by the name of Bob Ream was telling me about it. And uh, uh, <laughs> so I went to it. I didn't know contest. Well, hey, I got in it and entered up. Well, I did pretty good. I, I won the novice division and I, I won the, the, the live shoeing class of it. So I kind of got hooked on it. But then life takes over. You know, you have two kids and you got mouths to feed. So I pretty much went to work. And, and uh, a buddy of mine went to the convention of the AFA I think it was the one in Houston, Texas. Yeah, years ago. And he came back and says, Becker, you won't believe what these guys are doing with this steel. Man, you gotta watch, you gotta see this. So the following year, we went out and uh, uh, went out to Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. And I watched that. I saw Edward Martin shoot draft horse as a demo. Oh, holy cow, that is really cool. So I sit there and I went, I got really excited about it. And I went uh, next year, I think it was in North Carolina. I went to practice for that competition. In those days, it was a lot different than it is now. You know, I think if I, if I remember right, you had to shoot half a horse or something. You had to, that was it, you know, for the live shoeing. Then you had a, 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 you had some other classes, uh, like a hunter class and stuff like that. And, and I was really having fun. And I was 
I was holding my own, you know, and, and that, learning a lot, just learning a lot. Competition and certification is a, one of the best ways to excel and, and teach yourself and to learn. Why? Because you have to prepare yourself for that. It's the prep work. You have to keep at it. Then life forces you into things. You know, I was in an auto accident, broke my back, and um, shortly after that, I got a divorce, you know, and that. And here I got these kids I got to raise uh, by myself at the time, and um, I try to keep everybody sound and fed and out of jail and stuff like that, you know, and keep things going. And as a single parent, and then um, along came my lovely wife, Andrea, and uh, she kind of understood things and whipped things shape, and she talked me into it, and she said, I think you should go compete again. You like to do that? And so I started back up at it, you know, and I really enjoyed it. And I started going to a lot of clinics. Uh, did clinics with uh, Shane Carter, uh, Bob Marshall, Grant Moon, Billy Crothers, all those guys. Uh, Craig, worked, went out to Craig's place a couple of times and that, and um, it just, the endless n of knowledge, the feel, the, the ladder, goes back to the ladder thing. You just start climbing this ladder and that. And um, in 2002, I was very excited I made the team. And uh, I was one of the oldest fellows that ever did that, myself and Jay Sharp. And in uh, 2004, I made it again. And uh, everybody kidding me because I was grandpa, so to speak. <laughs> I was the oldest guy at the team said, come on, let's go party. I'm going to bed. Sorry, guys. You know, <laughs> But uh, the education and the friendship and the camaraderie is worth a lot, so much, so much. It's uh, endless. What advice do you have for getting into competition or better preparing yourself for competition? Hook up with somebody that, that that's done it or, or will help to get you started, and then you gotta have the desire and, and the uh, the want, so to speak. That doesn't mean um, you gotta forget your clientele and all that stuff. But the thing is, is about uh, the competitions. Um, once you get started at it, you think you're making all these shoes, and they're just lawn ornaments. You know, um, well, they're not because you're learning how to take a piece of steel and turn it into the mimic of a foot that you just trimmed. And it, that increases and benefits your efficiency on your day to day work. And I know there's a big thing. Uh, well, not, I don't know if it is now. I'm kind of um, getting a little long on the tooth, but it, there's a. Uh, a thing where, uh, oh, he's a horseshoe, competition horseshoe, you know. What's a competition horseshoe anyway? That always bothered me. Um, because you're a horseshoe. You take a piece of steel, straight, you turn it into a horseshoe. Okay? There's no difference in doing that or the guy that buys the shoe. It's the application. You chose to buy that shoe. I chose to make that shoe. Now let's apply them. That's the application. It's the most important thing. So we're all horseshoers. Everybody is a horseshoer. If you're going to shoe horses, you're not a competition shoer. You're, you're not a cold shoer. You're, you're not a backyard shoer. You shoe horses. And um, I, I, I think to get started into shoeing horses like that, 
you have to take the right mindset and just go to a couple competitions and watch and see how things are done and hook up with somebody that's willing to help you and, and show you a few things. Um, there's lots of clinics to go to. Uh, the WCB is a great, great menu. They have different levels uh, and stuff like the AFA, the certification program. Uh, I've always had this little philosophy that we're all horseshoers. First thing, regardless of whether you're what horseshoe you are, you can be the world champion horseshoer or you can be a kid that just signed up and you're in the first day of shoeing horses. That's shoeing school. You all have one thing in Pick up at the bottom of the foot, pick the foot up, and you have to clean the shit and the dirt and the manure out of the bottom of that foot to inspect it and look at it. So at one point in time, we are all professionals. Excuse my friend, shit pickers. <laughs> okay? So with that in mind, we've all started at the bottom. The hot, the thing is, is you, do you, how far do you want this thing to go? You can take it. Endless. Endless. Uh, there's guys that have gone in from shoeing horses into a, a gr really good ornamental iron workers. You just got to find that avenue to get you get you going. And once you find that avenue, and age has something to do with it, uh, economics, family, life, just life pops you. I mean, you can, you can take it as far. The young guys that are single... And they're really getting involved. They can take this to the end. They really can. They can. They can just go, go with it, and enjoy it. Because, unfortunately, life kicks you in the fanny, and life slows you down, whether you want to or not. You know, it just happens. It just happens. I'd like to thank Dick Becker for the great interview. I'd also like to thank VetTech for sponsoring this episode. You can learn more about their products at VetTech.com. If you have any suggestions or comments about this podcast, please visit its page at AmericanFarriers.com podcast. You can leave your feedback there or make a suggestion about another farrier you would like to see interviewed. Until next time, thanks for listening.